In this extra of the Rama Blueprints podcast, we listen to Dr. Concepcion Salcedo Martinez, also known to many with respect and deep love as Concha. Concha is a Mexican Yaqui Chicana, born in California and raised in traditional indigenous ways. In the 1970s, Dr. Concha Salcedo was instrumental in co-founding Instituto Familiar de la Raza, a Latino mental health clinic in San Francisco's Mission District. Concha and her colleagues in the community revolutionized mental health practices by providing clients with spiritual and culturally sensitive services and workshops. Through her knowledge, teachings, and wisdom, she made therapy and psychiatric care more accessible and affordable to the Latino community in San Francisco. In the year 2000, Dr. Saucedo, in collaboration with the Real Alternatives Program, created and developed La Cultura Cura, which promotes a reflection of culture, critical consciousness, self-reflection, social-emotional wellness, deep understanding of the individual, group historical and cultural relationships, and the teachings of En La Quesh, You Are My Other Self. A community activist for social justice for over 50 years, she is a grandmother of seven, respected elder, traditional healer, practitioner, visionary, public school teacher, professor, former board president of the Real Alternatives Program, RAP, and the executive director emeritus of Instituto Familiar de la Raza. She has focused her life work on integrating indigenous spiritual practices with mental health services for the healing of youth, families, and community. At present, her vocation is to pass on to others, particularly young people, the healing practices and ceremonies from this continent. We present in her own words, Dr. Concepcion Concha Saucedo Martinez. What inspired you to get involved in community work? What drove your heart to activism? Okay. I'll start with my parents first, Carlos Salcedo and Rosa Martinez. My father came here essentially as a political refugee from Mexico because he was involved after the revolution in the 20s in the Cristero movement in which the people demanded that the temples and the churches be left open. They had been all closed. It was a, actually an armed rebellion, and my mother got word that he was going to be killed, so he and his whole family left, and they had compadres up in this area. And then my mother followed and got married, and then the children started coming. I'm one of five. The two boys died very young, nearly as toddlers, because they couldn't get health care. And I think that formed me in some ways. But I was born here in San Francisco, fifth floor, St. Mary's Hospital. Mm. I like to tell that to the people who shout out on the street, go back where you came from. I said, yeah, I'll go back to the hospital. You have to have a sense of humor about That's right. these things. We lived here till I was about seven. And then my father got a job in a nursery in Niles, California. Niles doesn't exist anymore as a small town. It's now part of Fremont. Oh. But all of that area was some of the best land in California. From seven till about, I was 12, I grew up in the country. And that formed me, I think, being in nature and rolling around in Niles Canyon 
and that kind of life, very different from city life. And then from there, we moved on to Santa Clara, when Santa Clara was just 10,000 people. And then I went off to school, College of Notre Dame. I was always taught by the wonderful nuns. And I've learned a lot of things, some that I didn't necessarily would have liked to avoid it. And then I went on to college and university. And in the summers, in order to make money, I worked, well, in the camps and in the empacaderas. And so empacaderas are... Factories? Like canneries, the packing canneries, houses. Packing houses. We packed, uh, we canned apricots, duraznos, peras, and I, we would all work the whole summer so that we'd have money for school and for the books and all of that. And I learned a lot there. One of the things I learned was I didn't want to work there because <laughs> it was cold and damp and they didn't treat you well. And this is in the 50s. And I said, no, this is not where I'm going to work. And my father was always involved in community. He had education in Mexico, so he spoke English well. And he worked organizing campesinos. And I used to hang out with him because I was the youngest. And I think that's where I learned how I should be in the world. And what he always told all of us was, if, if you have any kind of talent and have good fortune, you have to use it on behalf of other people, not just for yourself. And I think watching the work that he did, he was never able to hold on to jobs very well because if he saw something that was wrong or a mistreatment, he would speak out. And he was usually the only Mexicano. So that also told me something about the consequences of your behavior if you chose that kind of path. And my mother was the same way in her own quiet way. She would gather all the kids in the neighborhood, and on Saturdays we would all sit together and learn how to do feminine things like bordando. We'd learn how to how to embroidery. We learn how to mend our socks. Oh. You know, all of those all, a very practical kinds of things. But that was her way of serving. So I, I think I got a, a direction from them just by watching what they did. And my sisters and I all went into some kind of health field. And I think because we heard the story about my two brothers, that this was in San Francisco, they went from health facility to health facility, and nobody would accept them because there was no money. Wow. Till finally, what is now Presbyterian Hospital, and they had a clinic for poor people. <clears throat> but it was too late. They both died from some kind of thing, of the collapse of their lungs. And I never forgot that. You know, I don't think any of us ever forgot that. And I have a feeling that's one of the reasons that we went into that, to make sure that it would be different. I think my mother and father were important forces right, for us, just right. watching how they were, that my father, oh, since he was more fortunate because he had education in Mexico, he could mm -hmm. serve people better. And in those days, he could go into court, wow. whether you were a lawyer or not, uh -huh. on behalf of people. He became known that way so that then people called on him to do those kinds of right. things. And since I hung out with him, I learned those things. Right. And then learned how people treated you. By going to Catholic schools, we got really good education in the academic sense. Absolutely. But that's also when I realized, I began seeing how if you had money, you were treated differently. And see, we were always either on a scholarship or my mother would go and 
sew for the nuns, do something for them. But I was noticing other things. And then in high school, I think I was 13, and they had Slave Day in high school when you were a freshman, that all the seniors could have one of you as a slave to do anything they wanted. And that struck me, and I thought, my favorite expression, if that's not right, <laughs> that's not right. And my sister was a senior, and she was quiet. And my other sister was a sophomore, and she was more quiet. And I said, no, this is not right. So I helped organize the freshman class to say, we don't, we're not going to be slaves. This is not right. Mm. No one should be a slave. All of those things came from somewhere. And although the schooling was excellent, I learned a lot about how class made a difference. And there were five of us who were Mexicanos. There was one Japanese American and one African American. And I always had a voice and a loud one. And I could express myself. And that created consequences everywhere because other people didn't like me for that. And it was usually white people. Or other people were embarrassed by me, Rasa people, because they were all more quiet than I was. And I had found a voice and I had a loud one. And I used theater and I studied theater, but I became a teacher. And I see myself as a teacher in whatever I do, whether I'm organizing, whatever I'm doing, it's about opening windows and doors and helping people be informed because I think that's what a teacher does. I'm not going to tell you how to be or what to do, but I'm going to provide maybe the tools that you need and also Another filter that you might want to have, look through this window instead of this window, instead of that window, and then you might see things a little different. And would you say uh, all those experiences led to inspiring you to get involved in community? Absolutely. Well, the other thing that impacted me was World War II. I was about, let's see, 1940, 41, I was six or seven years old. Mm -hmm. And we were in school in Nile. And this was the only time we went to public school. And there were a lot of Japanese and Japanese-Americans in the school because they were also working in the fields. And some of my little friends were Japanese. One day they disappeared. That's how it appeared to me. They disappeared. And nobody explained, why is Wayman not here? And that's one who I remember. And the teachers didn't explain. And so I asked my parents over and over again, And finally, my father said, well, there's a war. And I don't think I knew what a war meant. And so he explained what that was. And then I said, but why did they take them away? And he said, because people thought that they were going to be traitors. And they're not. And so that always stayed with me and made me consider how people treated people who were different. And then... After they came back, none of the Japanese would ever talk about what had happened and that they lost their homes and they lost their property. And all of those things seemed to me, again, this is not right. And so I went about trying to make things better. And fortunately in my family, as my mother would always say, well, when anybody can come to the home and I'll just look in their eyes and I will know what kind of person they are, <laughs> yeah. whether te conviene or no. No, right. Is that a good person? So I think all of those things led me to that place of saying, be involved. And I first got involved because the way my father talked about the war, 
and that it was wrong, and it was wrong to put the Japanese in concentration camps. And then he said, think about this. They never put the Germans in concentration mm-hmm. camps. So I began putting things together. And at 16, I became a part of the War Resisters League because my father also said war is immoral. He had that mm-hmm. belief. He didn't call himself a pacifist, but right. I think that's what he believed. And so through university, I was in the peace movement. And then I got involved in the civil rights movement early on through civil rights for African Americans first. And then I became involved with civil rights for Mexicanos. And this was the 60s. And you went to college at Notre Dame? College of Notre Dame in Belmont. I was 17. I was young. And I think I noticed a lot of other things there. There weren't too many of me. And the people that were more like me came from Central or South America, but they were very rich. Oh, yeah. And we were the poor cousins. But we got along well. I think all of those things began really entering my consciousness around not just race and culture, but class as well. So I thought all of those things create inequality and unfairness. And then how people saw me on the streets, and like many people at that time, if you were Mexicano, you went through a period of denying it. And by this time, we were living in Santa Clara and going to school in San Jose, high school, and people would talk to me in Spanish on the street, and I would deny it. That that begins how you adapt to a situation, mm-hmm. right? And I could have continued to adapt that way, but all of these other things that had happened with me created a spark that mm-hmm. didn't last very long. Because then later people would say to me, well, you speak so well. Uh, you must be Spanish or <laughs> something else. I go, no, I'm Mexican. And then later I'm Chicana, and then later I'm Indian. When I was in my doctoral degree, There were a lot of Jewish people, very bright and very articulate, and they would read a paper I wrote, and they'd say, well, where did you learn how to write like this? Same place you did. But (laughs) it really helped me understand a a mindset that even though these people were educated, they were also socialized in a certain way to see myself and anybody who looked like me. And if I hadn't had the fortune to be in a grad school, they would have looked down on me even more as they did other people. After college, I got married. I was teaching in Gilroy, and that just cemented many things because in Gilroy at that time, Mexicanos were the workers. What years are those? Uh, That was 1959, and I lived there until 66, Mm -hmm. 67. So I got involved with that community, both organizing, campesinos, trying to get better housing, and we did. We worked with, my husband was involved uh, with Quakers, and so we were able to help people organize to build together with a contract to have their own homes. And in the school I was teaching, I was the only Chicana, and half the school was Mexicanos. When I first moved there, I couldn't buy, I couldn't rent where I wanted to rent because no Mexicanos rented there. And there was one African-American teacher the same with them. We had to rent where all the other people of color rented. So all of those things just over time, just you either ignore it or adapt it or refuse. And I became a refusenik. And I learned another lesson. When I was organizing, of course, you went on TV to talk about these things. 
when I came back to teaching, the superintendent called me into his office and said, we hear what you've been doing. And I said, well, what have I been doing? They said, well, we heard from some of the landowners that you were organizing. And young lady, I'd like you to promise that you won't do that. Now, I had checked out how much money the superintendent earned. So I said, uh, well, you earn X amount of money, and your job is to protect me from people like that. I said, I'm not going to stop. What I do at the end of the day, once the school is closed, is my business. And we were also organizing other people in the community. Mm -hmm. They made it difficult for me, but fortunately I had tenure, so they couldn't get rid of me. And I knew it, and I wasn't afraid to tell them. So I left when I was ready to leave. So eventually you make your way to the Bay Area, right? Yeah, well, eventually of... I got divorced. Actually, my husband left me, <laughs> and I wouldn't take him back for many reasons. And then after a time, I came back and stayed with my mother in Santa Clara. And then I met this other man, got involved with him, except he lived in Oakland. And he asked me to come up to Oakland. And I, now I think, well, why didn't I ask him to come down to San Jose? But he asked me right, to go to Oakland. Right. And that's when I got more involved with the African-American community because right. he was African-American. And that didn't last forever. And then by that time, I was back in graduate school working on my doctorate. And that's where I had met Dr. Solis. And we brought him in to teach there. And he was a psychiatrist at Mission Neighborhood Health Center. Right. And I was doing my internship there with him. And that's how I met Jim and Ashby and Sam and Roberto and all of them. Because, and this is the beginning of the rap story, Solis was already providing psychiatric services right. and so on, medicine and so on, for the youth from RAP. And one day, I think it was Esperanza who came, Esperanza and Sam, and they said they're doing assessments up at YGC, Youth Guidance Center, but we know that the assessments are inappropriate. Will you come and do assessments there? Will someone come from the staff? And I volunteered. I said, no, I'd like to oh. go up because I'd like kids. And so I went up there and I figured they'd have a little room for me. Oh yeah, they did. It was a broom closet. Mm -hmm. Actually, the brooms were in there. Right? Yeah. And as I'm ready to go in and they had brought the young man out, the, I don't know, the guard, whoever he was, said, aren't you afraid? I said, afraid of what? He said, aren't you afraid of going in with this young man? And I said, no, I'm not afraid of this young man. He's about 14. I'm probably more afraid of you. And we went in, and that's how it began. And we were able to write different kinds of reports that then the RAP could use to get the kind of plan that they needed accepted by the department because it was signed off right by us and a psychiatrist. So we were using the tools right. that we had gained to gain something that we needed. And that began my relationship with RAP. And then later I volunteered to work with, they had the CASA, the alternative house so that they wouldn't have to be sent to foster homes or there were other houses, but they were not culturally appropriate. Right. And so they always needed somebody to come in and talk with the youth. And that's how I started. And then from there, any way that I could be of service at RAP, I did that. And then eventually I was asked to be on the board. And I was on the board for many years. Bonchal, you were 
in the forefront of braiding Indigenous practices into Western mental health wellness. How did you incorporate Indigenous teachings into Instituto Familiar? Since I was into dares and ceremony, that started way back for me in the 60s. I just became involved. And so since that was part of my involvement and part of what I saw was also needed beyond the social action and social justice, that there needed to be an exploration. And I didn't think of it in that way. I just thought, these are good things, and they reflect the culture of the kids that are here, although oftentimes they are kind of separated from it. But we started with Dia de Muertos and then building the altar, not only for when people had passed, but that's usually when it started, but also just having an altar in the presence of that energy there, I don't think that happens in any other program. And the altar, talk a little bit about what the altar is. The altar, uh, for me, I like to describe it as a table of energy. It is the center and the core of where energy can be. And we can draw from that energy and we could put energy there, positive as well as one wants to be rid of something that is harmful to one. If you have something that manifests that, you can leave that on the altar so that energy can be transformed. <laughs> I've had people put up their uh, beer cans or the, before marijuana was legal, they put their marijuana cigarettes up there and people would be shocked. I said, no, this is a table. And you could put this as a mess of prayer and of energy and you can receive energy and you can give energy. And that's why we build them wherever we go. That's fairly simple. Right. Or it's even more simple, just the salmador for the copal or for the incense and a candle and some water. And most people, without recognizing, have altares in their homes. We have a photo of the family. You might have little remembrances of them, and that's an altar. That's the energy of those people that have been around. So it's an important element to have any place, and it helps people find a certain tranquility and peace when they mm -hmm. sit in front of an altar, even though that they may not have any memory of it or whether it's not customary, but that's what's present on that altar. Right. It also represents safety. And so that became part of your your DNA, your walk, right? It began before Instituto, okay. and then the Instituto was being planned, okay. right? Because the idea of Instituto started out as a mental health center, but the idea always was that it would be more health, health production, prevention, and education. We weren't so much interested in treatment because we thought you need to have interventions before so you don't have to have treatment. But the public health system, I still think it's really not organized around <laughs> mental health education or health education. It's still more around treatment. It's more of a, a medical right. design. In the mid-70s, we started organizing around that together with a lot of the people that were involved in RAP. So Esperanza was involved in that, Santiago was involved in that, Roberto Hernandez, because we had a sue or intend to sue the state of California and the city and county of San Francisco until they release money. And I think what made it clearer for us, and certainly for me, 
was what had happened in relation to rap and mm -hmm. the kids. That it was clear that not just for Latino and Chicano Native children did we need dedicated services, but for the whole community. It was mm -hmm. clear that they weren't receiving that. So that, in a way, rap clarified that for us. Mm -hmm. And how long were you executive director of Instituto Familiar? Too long. Um, Too long. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, but there are a number of us that stayed together, and this is where Solis, he was right. certainly a part of that. He developed Calmeca, and for two years we would meet, I think, once a week to first to understand where we came from and what that meant. And what is the Calmeca? Calmeca is a learning school coming from the ancient traditions. This is where if a family identified you as having a leadership quality, you were sent to that school to learn the traditions and the ways and how to manifest that. I want to share something with you. Yesterday when Alfredo Bojorquez, we were in conversation, and he said that his trajectory through rap, his history and his involvement, was a calmeca mm -hmm. and a learning experience and what he went through. And he said it, it was a continuum of Calmeca for him. And mm -hmm. to hear that you're talking about 1970, mm -hmm. and here we are talking in 2021, where these learning processes are now institutionalized within. And I mean by that in a positive way, that it becomes a part of a practice with someone's work, mm -hmm. community work. Yeah, because we did, I remember Roban and Stella and I did Calmeca Center around case management mm -hmm. for rap, because that's kind of one of the things, but we used that term. It's really the Calmeca in integrates both the technology that you need today in right. terms of techniques and strategies, but also bringing right. the ancient into it and understanding that all these things have a basis in our own path. Let's talk a little bit about the relationship that Instituto and RAP developed. How does that start to really become like this sisterhood? Well, I think it began with my relationship with RAP. Mm -hmm. And then once I became executive director of IFR, then that became part of our standard. Mm. My, my expectation, though, every, not everybody understood it or accepted it. You don't force those things mm -hmm. on people. But I always wanted people to share themselves with RAP in whatever right. way they could, in whatever knowledge that they had, and some people did. Uh, and other people didn't. But it was always there when we did Dia de Muertos, mm -hmm. there, as well as our place. It was us together when we had the Rathathon. <laughs> and the, the kids used to call it the Rata, the Rathathon. <laughs> and the Rathathon was what? It was a run, a 3.5 run that was established by right. Instituto. And again, together with RAP was fundamental to it because we needed funding. We right. needed sources of money right. that was not tied to city money. And so we got this idea. And I don't know if how the name came about, whether for me or for somebody else, these ideas come through. And we would run everything, all the staff. Well, after all, you know what it's like yeah. when you're doing your own work, but running a run, clocking people <laughs> in. We couldn't continue it, and then it finally, like many things, come and go. Right. I'm encouraging Gloria at Instituto, why don't you do that again? Because it wasn't really about just raising money. This is something that families can do together. 
We wanted to run in the, to the mission. And it did. Because we want people to see. And then it was run and you could walk. Yeah. Because right. we wanted to encourage. This right. is very healthy, free exercise. So you're at Instituto, and my first meeting of Instituto folks was when you guys were on, on 24th Street. Yes. And my first interaction with you guys, I remember going over there because it was a shared client, and, and you guys were already respectful of the boundaries in mental health protocols and the HIPAA stuff. And, you know, yeah. at RAP, we were still kind of learning, and Ruan was struggling with trying to keep folks like, oh, you don't disclose that. This is how you do this. And yeah. we, and. I had come from the state of California, so I had been working in the state system, so I knew about that. And then I go over there, I go, where's, where's this instituto? And I walk up and there's a group of kids hanging out there in front. Later, I, I be, learn to know who they are. And I go, excuse me, can you guys move? They're like, what's up, what's up? And I'm like, excuse me. And Herman uh -huh. walks down, you know, and, ay, estos niños siempre están aquí. And they're like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> You know, and I didn't even know them. And I just went, you can show some respect. Then I ran upstairs and then I interfaced with the therapist that you had at the time. Mm -hmm. And I, that was my first understanding about how Rap and Instituto began mm -hmm. to work. A lot of things went on during that time. There was a, a year that a lot of the staff talk about, the year of 1994 to 95, where there were about 40 murders. I remember yeah. being with Mitchell in front of the police station because that young man had left, they released him, and then he got shot right, right there. Right. Byron got, Alvarado Martinez was his name, and he had just turned 14. So we went down to that area to kind of examine what had happened, and also at that time we would take the copal out when mm -hmm. anything happened on the street to mm -hmm. cleanse the street, to make a little altar, and I remember that vividly. A number was claiming that was a pivotal moment. It was. And I think you as a board member and others began the advocacy to increase the funding. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like in regards to advocating for more money to enhance programming in the community at that time? Well, what it created in me it was a, that I didn't like, but it was necessary. It was a lot of anger and sadness at the same time that we had to get to that point where 52 children had to be dead. We talked that way to the city, and what would make me an angry was that there was really no response, no, no effective response, no, no feeling about what was happening, that children were being killed unnecessarily, and all that we were asking was really for small amounts of money to continue and to carry on programs or to mm -hmm. create what Mitchell was trying to create, businesses. Remember the Slag Locks? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and that was his creative entrepreneurial spirit and understanding that the kids needed jobs. And, uh, yeah, it, it created anger and sadness and also determination mm -hmm. to keep on. Yeah, and that we needed to be freer. Mm. And in order to be freer, we had to have money that was not attached to the city, because right. there was always, and still is, limitations to what you can do with city or, or federal money, and always looking for money that existed elsewhere. But I think there, there was a time where the bad-mouthing of rap 
particularly by YGC, where they wouldn't refer clients to Ralph. Right. I don't know if you remember that. Right. They wouldn't refer clients to the Gotham. And that certainly is not right at all, because that was a very personal issues with those people. Mm -hmm. They didn't like some of the people that went up and advocated for the children, and that should never have to be. And then there was a time when the doors were chained at YGC, which caused a reaction from the people up at Juvenile Hall. And mm -hmm. Thus began that negative relationship. How did the community, in respect to Instituto first, and then RAP, and the impact that you all had in changing policy or influencing policy? I think both groups, both RAP and Instituto, had a lot to do with changing policies within the city. And also because we worked with different cultural groups mm. to bring about those changes. Mm -hmm. You know, be, it used to be that in the health services, it was always bilingual. You need to have bilingual services. And one of the things that we got changed, and this was with the help of Asians and African Americans, we said, we're going to advocate for those changes. And I remember us at the health commission, all of us standing up and saying, you know, we need to have bicultural services. And that includes African Americans, right? Because they also have a foundational base that is different from the rest of the people. So, I mean, that was one of the major ones, that I, because that then made it possible to push for more money, because the city did not have bicultural services. Mm -hmm. And to some degree, I think still don't, because yeah. the limit, in my, in my view, the limitations of how bureaucracies work don't always permit you to work in the way that you should be working. Say if you were a clinician, you couldn't always go and see your client in the park. You're supposed to keep them in the office. So then the delivery of the service could not be appropriate to the culture. If you had to have the kids only come in to rap and you couldn't go out to the street where the kids were, then it wasn't going to work. So I think that was fundamental. And in, in just the changes that has finally occurred that YGC is gonna close. Right. How long did that take? But how does that make you feel? When you hear about that, it's gonna be shut down. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> then, the, then the people, well, what are you gonna do with those? Well, we need to have community houses for those that need that and the kind of support that they're going to need that. And yeah, there may be people that are a danger to others, so you need something special for that. But I think people can figure that out, you know, as we've all figured it out. Because, you know, a lot of the kids that I think were kept out of YGC because of the activities of RAP, that can still go on and expand it. But we have to have specialized right. places and services for them. We've been hearing over the last days, if RAP was still here, yesterday Ariad spoke about that RAP started as an idea. And then from the idea, it went to a program. And then from a program, it became a collaboration. Mm -hmm. And then from a collaboration, it went to a philosophy and eventually a spirit. And so and, it, and it exists in that way. Yeah, it exists. It's like it doesn't have to have a, a building to right. exist. Because I think, say like Cultura Cura, that was one of the ramas that came, but it, it came with those ideas. Right. Um, and homies, they are now programs in different ways, but they all had the same seed. What was planted there has grown not only into a tree with a lot of branches, mm -hmm. so it still exists. Because mm -hmm. sometimes people feel so much sorrow because it died, but it didn't die. It evolved. 
And so you were there during the closure. I cried. I mean, I, remember, I can't remember what public meeting we were in. I couldn't stop the tears because mm -hmm. I was really, you know, I felt a responsibility. Absolutely. And But I also knew that we had to shut down. We mm -hmm. couldn't go on that way. And it was past the time because no matter how hard Mitchell tried, we couldn't get the funding that we needed to get mm -hmm. out of that, that bind. How did that personally transform you? <sighs> I think in many ways to understand that maybe decisions should have been made earlier, mm -hmm. different kinds of decisions, and but none of us could get to that place because you have an idea that it's going to exist and somehow that miracle is going to happen or that other people would change and provide funding for us that we could get out of the hole. It brought a, a sense of reality about being more careful mm. and providing and having more knowledge. I have a lot more knowledge about how to run something now <laughs> than I did then. So it, so there was a lesson for you there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it was a sad lesson. And you think that's around the time that I was going for the building. That was an, another piece that you have to have property, some kind of property in this kind of society, because then you can borrow against it. And you have to have assets. And that's something that, that RAP didn't have. Hadn't been able to develop because we were so dedicated to providing a service. That's right. That's what I learned in the mistakes I made at the Instituto, that you, you can't keep providing the service unless you have some kind of a, asset that gives you that that base of support that you won't go under. And I think that happens to a lot of nonprofits that have that kind of dedication to service. Funding comes in and you put it all into employing people that are going to provide service. And you don't put any into administration. And then you have what happened with Mitchell. He's doing everything. For a time, we used to rent out the, the fiscal. All of those right. things, and nobody taught us those things. We had to learn it through these lessons. And it was a really painful time during oh, that time. Oh, absolutely. Right? And a lot of sadness looming over the community, mm -hmm. a lot of miscommunication. Mm -hmm. You as the board president, how did you walk with that? How did you move through that? Because, you know, you're an executive director of your own agency. You're in the process of buying a building. Getting it donated. I mean, getting it donated. <laughs> I'm sorry. And Mitchell was involved with you, trying oh, to yes. make those connections. A... He knew the contractors, and he was shaking and moving. And yeah. yet here we were, we were trying to patch the you boat. Know, I, <laughs> it was a sad time for me. You know, I think I had Moraima, oh, yeah. who was a very spiritual and prayerful person. See, I she was always praying for, I had my altar, but it was very difficult. I didn't sleep a lot. Because, mm. you know, you have to look at what could I have done more. Mm. And I was president of the board, and people were mad. Why are you shutting it down? <laughs> you know, we're going under. We are under. Yeah. But you can't explain that all the time to people because the feelings are there. It meant so much to all of us. So it was hard decisions. By that time, everybody had left the board. So I was left. <laughs> it was just you and I at that point. <laughs> yeah. Driving around, practically begging people, will you please take the program? Don't shut the program down. Yeah. We got a plan. That's and I remember right. you and I sitting and talking in this house where we're at sitting. You remember in this... better than I do. Right. One way that I deal with it is to forget about right. some of it. In that garden out there, how I learned about your tree, the, the grandfather. 
and saying, well, what's going to be the plan? Who can we talk to? We began to meet with Willie Brown and Kamiko Burton, which were all mayor's office of community oh, justice, yes. MOCJ, and asking, we have a plan. And I think the city had some compassion because they had known. And I think, I'm not trying to make an excuse for the city, but I think that there were some people that worked inside of there that knew the hard work. But I also knew a reality, and that's that we weren't going to be able to continue the way we thought. Yeah. If we had really looked at it realistically Mm -hmm. earlier on, we had kind of magical uh, (laughs) glasses on because it's a hard thing to look at that kind of reality. And then when I had the same thing happening at Instituto, I forget this organization, they provided like $300,000 as a loan and that saved Instituto. And then we got a wonderful fiscal person who's still there. And so yeah. infrastructure is real critical to a nonprofit. Absolutely. Right. And that it's, has always been a weakness, I think, to all nonprofits. Because right. you want to put so much into service. It, and they say, well, we don't need an administrative assistant. But yes, I tell them, yes, you do. Because an executive director can't do everything. And in lessons learned with RAP, it, as you just said, the operations were the least funded mm-hmm. and services were funded because the passion of the heart to help the people. That's right. And if you had advice for young startup, nonprofit, people of color, what would you say to them right now? Build a strong infrastructure from the beginning, Mm -hmm. just like the U.S. government is trying to do, (laughs) and be sure you have good benefits, good health care, you know, because people have left as their families begin growing Mm -hmm. and they need additional funding. They can't stay there. So if you have it available, and my brother-in-law who used to organize for the Teamsters, Mm -hmm. he always told me, Hey, the most important thing are the benefits that you're providing, not the salary, because the benefits will keep people. Health care is the most important. A lot of places still don't have health care. If you have a philosophy of service, keep returning to that and relearning it and reteaching it, because as new staff members come, they may have other ideas that are very positive, but they may not fit into your Mm -hmm. philosophy. And so as an executive director and board member, what do you think are some of the key strategies or key values to building a cohesive core for work? A cohesive core of people, respect for the mission of the organization or the philosophy of the organization so that you respect it, which means you're going to manifest it in the way you work, and in the way you are in the community. Because it's not about just serving the, quote, target population, but we're really serving the entire community in whatever we do. So we have to be involved in other activities of the community, otherwise you won't be known. And if you're not known, people uh, are not gonna know what the programs are really about. They learn that through having respect for you as a person. So I think all of those things are the most important. Be in the community that you are working in, whether you are from here or not. But once you're here, be in that community. Mm -hmm. Participate so people know your face. And one of the things that I've always respected about Instituto and through in conversation and being part of the work was the opportunity to be able to work with other communities, right? Mm, Absolutely. And so... 
that became part of the fabric of the work. At that eventually, Instituto has expanded into now. You guys are up on up in the Excelsior. Mm -hmm. I, I'm hearing that maybe the Bayview or exactly. or services are out there anyway. Yeah. And yeah. how integral has that been? Oh, it's, I think it's been central to all our work. And for me personally, it's that I went to school, graduate school, with making alliances with different groups. And then people from those groups went on serving their own communities. Mm -hmm. They're out there. It's the relationship that we built so that I can call up and say, hey, for example, Abner, hey, Abner, we're doing this and we need some help. Can you support it? Or they'll do the same thing, even to this day, so that those relationships are fundamental. And I don't think all community organizations do that. What I see right now in some of the mission leadership, there's a certain kind of negative nationalism that's just so focused just on us, and even just on us, the mission, and not seeing how we are truly interconnected with other communities and that we share commonalities as well as differences. We're different, but we respect the difference. And this is not a time to have that kind of, that kind of nationalism, even to the extent that if you're not from here, then you can't. I mean, that to me is kind of a nationalism. What is it? We really need a more global mindset just within San Francisco, let alone within the world. Absolutely, absolutely. But mm -hmm. all that is really true. It takes a village, all those things. But I think that we move towards them. And, um, and I know that there's still a lot of energy to try to make that happen, right, and try mm -hmm. to be more positive. And I think the other thing I would say, because of certain things that have happened recently in the community, if somebody has done something that is not, or allegedly, uh, something that is inappropriate, we can't protect them. Mm. from that. We can support them in making change and in looking at themselves. And I think uh, there's sometimes too much protection because this person is a leader. Uh, and we're not helping them by not helping them see what they may or may not have done and how to correct it. And that's a hard thing to do. And oftentimes it's difficult to just come clean up. You don't realize that it's really part of your growth. And when we talk about the closure of RAP and what happened with mm -hmm. the executive director. There's been a certain amount of remorse and repair mm -hmm. that the individual goes through, right? It's a growth period. And I, hearing it from Mitchell's own words, and this will probably be said on this podcast because we're talking about learning and you as the board president, is that we have to come to that realization that we're just human and we just make mistakes. And sometimes yeah. it's bigger to see the person just become humble and say, you know, hey, I was just trying to do the best that I could. Yeah, and, I, and you said that it's tied in with humility. Humility means that you recognize your faults and your limitations as well, because we all have them. And there's nothing wrong with that, because that's the, kind of, that's the human condition. I have a limitation as to, right now, I have a limitation as to how I can move, and I had to deal with that, because I was very active in everything. But and you say, okay, that's what it is right now. And so how can I move? What can I do? How do I keep, in terms of the, my vocation, how can I keep on doing what I'm doing? How can I be of service? And I can still be of service. Absolutely. And I understand that. So when people ask me, then I say yes. Or I have to say I can't right now because I don't have enough energy because that becomes a limitation right. as you grow older for all of us. And I say that to you. I'm sure you know that. <laughs> yeah, because sometimes we think we're limitless, and that's when we fall into problems. 
If you were to talk to your 16-year-old self now as the wise woman that you've become, what would you say to her? And what words of advice would you give her? I would say keep on, but be a little more careful <laughs> about how you go about making decisions and who you identify with. Because I, over the course of the years, I've had friendships or involved people in the circle that weren't really, they were there for other reasons. In some cases, because they were like undercover for the police or for the government, that I have to be more careful around those kinds of choices. And now I am more careful. I'm trying to be like my mother and really looking, is this person really intentional about what they're doing or is that they're doing it for some other kind of reason? And it's easy to be fooled because we all like to have people around us who think we're, we have some value and then we make mistakes. So I'm certainly a lot more careful now around who's around me. And I don't have a lot of new people around me. So you would say to her to be careful. Be careful. So Concha, I want to thank you for all of the work that you have done, but more so for the guidance and also for just being so honest and transparent with us. I thank you for that and I thank you for your work and um, I look forward to more conversations with you. Gracias. I do too. Gracias a los dos. The extras of Rama Blueprints podcast are intended to help the listener with a deeper understanding of the people, the events, and places that created the Mission District and the series as a whole. Thank you for listening to this extra. And remember, to listen is to heal. All power to the people. <laughs>